Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500-year-old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute. And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate, and an MBSR teacher and trainer. Greetings, Doug. Hey, John. Yeah, great. I'm doing great. How are you? Doing all right. Sun is out. Can't complain. And it's Beautiful a little, day. A little cooler than it has been. So, yeah, refreshing. So, our topic today, I think, was going to be our own, in a way, our own practice of meditation and how we approach meditation, um, which you know might be helpful for people to hear. And then down the road, we'll no doubt be talking about the different types of meditation. Yeah, I'm curious to hear like what your normal practice is, your sort of default practice. Yeah, um, well, I, I do. What I will say is that my practice should be better than it is. I, I guess we can all say that, but I feel that way, and that's why I'm going to put. I'm going to start by saying that. Meaning what? Well, <laughs> what I mean is that I do. I do a half an hour of meditation every day. Um, mm-hmm. There was a time uh, several years ago where I did 45 minutes a day, and I found that made a huge difference. Now, then you'll ask me, why don't you do 45 minutes a day now, Doug? And I'll say, you know, I don't know why. But then the question becomes, you know, why don't I do an hour a day? You know, I mean, these are, and I've heard people say you should be doing two hours a day. Anyway, but my default practice is to do a a half an hour meditation every day after I, it's important to me to pick a particular time and space to do it in. I I consider that almost part of the practice. I do do exercise first thing in the morning when my brain is still shut down, because that means I can get through the exercise without having to think about it, take a shower, and then I do meditation. Because I find that doing meditation after physical activity keeps me more awake, more alert. Mm. And I I prefer to be alert, because my, my tendency in meditation is to sort of fall half asleep. Every meditation is good. However, I prefer a meditation which is a little bit more alert, which is why I do it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the practice that I do in meditation is relatively unscripted, but basically I, fo- I start by following the breath and just want to get in touch with my mental state at that time. What is going on in my mind? What is? What are the concerns that are coming up? Just to see, just to see what they are. What is... What is and is it the same obsessions or concerns that I've had in the last few days, or is it something new? Um, because I find that useful to my own practice to know whether there is something that is continually concerning me, which happens sometimes over several weeks or months, or whether there's something that just, you know, it's just something that comes and goes. Um, so what's the state of my mind? What's going on in my mind? What's going on in the world? Mm-hmm. That is to say, at the moment, what is going on in the world at the moment around me? It's just to calm myself, and also just to calm myself down, because I, the, the, one of the aspects that I find very pleasant in meditation is the calming aspect, so to calm myself down before the day. Then usually, as I get calmer, near, nearing the end of the meditation, I'll take some time for loving-kindness meditation. I'll do a little bit of uh, metta or loving kindness. And one of the practices that I've found very useful is that if I'm very worried about something, which happens from time to time, 
that loving kindness is extremely helpful to me. I find it as one of the most beneficial practices that I know of to sort of calm worries down. Uh, and and the Buddha himself talks about that, about how it, it helps to calm fears. And so that that's generally the practice that I do. I'm, I'm curious when you say that 45 minutes felt better to you or felt, I forget what you actually said, but what was the difference? What do you, what do you notice as the difference? Uh, I found remember? it was, yeah, well, what I mean. The, what, what, what happened in the last 15 minutes that doesn't happen now? Well, it's not so much within the meditation. It's sort of the rest of the day. It, it, it was it, it was sort of like what I'm doing now, except more in the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, it's 50% more time. And so I would find that it was better at sort of calming myself down, better at getting a handle on my own right. awareness of my own mental state. Uh, at the time, I was also trying to do some deeper meditation, and I found it was better at that, like, you know, sort of meditations that will get... Ge- bring joy from within just sort of spontaneously mm-hmm. and it was more helpful at that i don't find the ability to do that if i'm doing a half an hour a day um but sure. if i'm doing 45 minutes uh or at least when i was doing 45 minutes i found that that sort of thing could happen more spontaneously yeah 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 makes sense so um thank you um i'm i have no judgments at all about 30 or 45 minutes. I, 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 my practice, and it's been interesting this last 18 months, of course, because, uh, as you know, we started this daily morning practice with what is now an ongoing sangha. And so three mornings a week, I, I'm leading that at eight o'clock or I'm sitting with them at eight o'clock anyway, which is generally a half an hour, but it, it's, it's when I guide a practice, I'm also practicing. And so the guiding of that practice is pretty much a mindfulness of breathing and body practice infused with gratitude and kindness. I try, my morning routine is get up, do some movement, have some coffee, do some study. And then if I have, depending on how early I got up, I will usually, I've now recently started doing a little chanting before if, if I'm if it's a day that I'm leading in the eight o'clock group, I'll do some chanting, and then start the meditation with the group. And I do that for a couple of reasons. One, the chanting both it grounds me, but it also opens my my voice up. Uh, and it took me a while to figure out, oh, this might actually help because sometimes at that time of the day, my voice isn't what I want it to be. So that's been an interesting discovery. And then when I'm not guiding a practice. These days now, I will start with some chanting and, and particular mantra practice that's related to the Kuan Yin practices I've been learning. And then I'll, I'll sit and, and the sit itself, the meditation itself, that uh, without the chanting, is pretty much a, a based around the mindfulness of breathing teaching. Again, though, infused with loving kindness and, and sometimes I will you know, link a phrase to the breath um, that's related to that. Not always. I mean, it, again, it, it it kind of depends on where I'm. my mind is before I even start. Um, and sometimes it's just, you know, right now, I just need to be with my body and let that be the, the practice. And then there are times when, you know, the mind is doing pretty wacky things and... I struggle through, like anybody else, without 
being judgmental about it. I just kind of, you know, watch the mind doing its craziness. You know, but but I, it's also the the because I have the good fortune of now pretty much supporting myself by teaching. The teaching itself, even when it's not in a formal practice situation, or when I'm not guiding a practice within the teaching, the teaching itself is the practice. You know, that becomes extremely, it's completely re- a relational practice at that point, where I'm just present with the, you know, observing what's happening in my mind and body as I'm hearing somebody else and then responding accordingly. And in a way, that's no different than meditating by myself and that I'm sort of noticing what's arising in my mind, how it's impacting my body and responding accordingly. Hmm. Yeah, I, was, I, I, I know that my practice has evolved certainly since I started teaching pretty much full time. And it's certainly shifted since starting to bring in these various Kuan Yin practices as well. So what are what are the what are those? You said that those were part of your morning routine. What yeah, exactly? so the 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 chanting. Um, there there are a couple of mantras that we were taught. That uh, you know, there's one mantra that's called the uh, the five heart mantra, which comes from a teaching known as the Sharangama Sutra. Very very long uh, teaching, and in the Sharangama Sutra is a, an extremely you know these. Mahayana mantras can be very, very, very long. That particular one is, I don't know how many pages it is. And, you know, people memorize this. And so there's, uh, there's the five heart mantras are from that sutra. And then there's the, the Sharangama mantra itself, which is at the very end of it. It's the last five lines. And, you know, it's, it's in a sense, a way of calling on the Bodhisattva of, of Kuan Yin uh, f- for support and protection. But it's also just, it's, it's kind of a cool, and it's in, it's in uh, Sanskrit basically. Um, and, and, you know, literally I do not even know the meanings of the word. I know the general feeling of the, the, the general meaning of the mantra, but not word by word. And then there are times if, if I'm up for it that I'll do what's known as the great compassion mantra, which is 60 some odd lines. Um, some of which I have memorized, no, 80 some odd lines, some of which I have memorized. And uh, I'll do that once. The other mantras I'll do, you know, either 108 times or some factor thereof, um, because they're, they're short and, and, and you can just speak them really quickly. Now, this is a very new practice for me. And as as I think I mentioned in an earlier podcast, I find it really helpful for just bringing me into the body because there's a vibratory nature, obviously, of this. And what's fascinating, just as a sidebar, because, you know, I I also uh, am a somatic experience practitioner and I work with people around trauma. And one of the techniques that Peter Levine, who's the man who really kind of coalesced around somatic work as a trauma therapy and, and developed it and wrote, has written extensively about it and researched it. One of the things he does is simply to bring people into their body is use a syllable, mm. uh, which, which people just sing in a sense out loud, or I wouldn't even call it singing, but there is something that is very impactful with that for people who have a hard time getting into their body. 
So I found these mantras to be really helpful in terms of that as well. Well, there's the Om, the very famous. Yeah, of om course. Yeah. yeah, and that and there's you know that that begins a lot of mantras. So you don't under. I mean, in other words, you're singing it in a in a different language. It's sort of like the Zen sort of, mantras yeah. that I recall chanting yeah. when I was many years sure. ago doing Zen yeah. Uh, yeah. sitting. Yeah. So it's a different and, language. I don't yeah. know the word for word translation. Right. I know so what the general sense of it is. Is it? I mean, so in other words, it's not intended then so much to be a conceptual thing. It's not at all. Yeah, not it's supposed all. to be yeah. more uh, right. Uh, Calming or invigorating yeah. or I think both. both in it a it sense? can be yeah. both, actually. Yeah. I mean, there's there's something calming about it, but at the same time, it, it it is enlivening because you're feeling it so much. The the great compassion mantra, and again, this is all new to me in the last couple of years. <laughs> it's much more. I'm mean, both of these, frankly. When you're doing it with a group of people, it's a very different experience than doing it alone, um, because the the vibration of the whole group. It really brings something to that. Yeah. Well, that's true um, of meditation in general, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, the thing about meditation now, especially in COVID times, you know, even even when you're just meditating with a group online, there's still the feeling that you're all supporting each other, but you can't chant effectively together online. True. Um, so often when I am with a group that's chanting, we'll listen to a recording. We'll all be chanting it ourselves while the recording is there kind of supporting us. That can be helpful. You know, again, this practice is still so, and I love the fact that it's new to me. It's really wonderful to bring in a new practice like this. And it wasn't until recently because I've been trying to figure out, because in, in a class that I'm teaching coming up, which is about the foundations of mindfulness, I'm trying to like figure out, well, what's an appropriate way perhaps to bring in chanting into that first foundation of mindfulness of the body. And it's so clear that if, you know, for people who just can't make contact, just do some chanting, even if it just is om, you know, but because that sound alone creates a vibratory sense in the body. So there is some great value in that. It's interesting because in, in early Buddhism, I the that chanting that I know of was not a part of meditation practice, except insofar as they were chanting the, the Dharma. Teachings. Yeah, yeah, the teachings. Yeah. But, but, but that's what's so interesting about it. And I've heard Ajahn Suchita talk about this a lot when I've been with him, is that, yes, you know, you're chanting the sutras and the chanting itself is, a, is the practice. But they so, don't talk about that. It's kind of interesting, at least well, he in does. the early suttas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, no, no, they no, don't they, mention it's, it. That's true. It's not talked about in the, in the suttas themselves. That's it's true. Just, um, it, it's just, it's more done simply to preserve them. Yeah, uh, because at the time, yeah. of course, they didn't have any writing, so yeah, and it's easier it's easier to remember things when you're chanting them. Yeah, and um, you're chanting them together so that right. you can keep an eye on making sure that you remember everything correctly. And yeah, you know, yeah. if you get a word wrong, somebody will. Let yeah, it go. <laughs> no question that it's it's yeah. you know, and it's interesting that you never because you do wonder, mm. um, but it's also you know, I mean, as as you know, chanting is a devotional practice and. While the monks were devoted to the Buddha and certainly bowed in front of the Buddha, at that time they weren't. I mean, they were they were presumably chanting the refuges, but one does wonder, and that that is one thing that was chanted, uh, and and you know obviously 
it, you know that that traditional chant refuge chant is is both yeah it wouldn't be considered a practice necessarily i mean as you say there's nothing that says you know this is a practice or this is meditation but the buddha really didn't talk that much about meditation except in a couple of suttas right i mean it's more about it was it was a way of 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 strengthening <laughs> one's mind and but but it wasn't like oh he said you know go meditate he said i'm i'm gonna do this practice but well he talked you know, he about didn't... meditation a lot i mean and, and he recommended it a lot yeah but it was something that was done quietly <laughs> right <laughs> well one of the things about the buddha is he didn't like loud noises so that's maybe one of the reasons why he he wouldn't have particularly yeah. liked chanting as a practice i i accept insofar <laughs> as was necessary to so actually something that says he didn't like loud noises Oh, he hated people talking. Uh, you know, oh, he used, oh, okay. You know, he when he would he would talk about um, the when when the monks were chattering on about stuff, he would say it's right. it's like a fishmonger selling fish by the right, river. Right, you know? right, so right. They should yes, be quiet. So and, that kind and they were sort of, yeah. of renowned for renowned among other teachers at the time of being very very quiet when they would come to the Buddhist sangha. It was everyone was very quiet. Yeah. So, I mean, they had yeah. to have had time sometime to chant uh, the suttas so that they could remember them, but presumably yeah. that was done. I don't well, that, know. That, that is, I mean, the, you know, the nature of chanting is not like noisy. It's, it's a kind of, I mean, you, you, you hear all sorts of different kinds of chanting. If you, you can go sure. online and listen to, even from monastery to monastery, even though they may be chanting the same words, it's a very different. It, it just varies from, from tradition to tradition, from country to country, mm -hmm. um, which is fascinating to me. I was, I was on a retreat recently with Martin Aylward in France and, and, uh, he had a particular way of, of chanting the refuge chant, which he swears that he learned when he was in India. But at this point, he says it's been well, however many years it's been. He's, he's certainly changed it and he has no idea what the original chant may have <laughs> sounded like, you know. So, and, and frankly, I don't, I will, I will say when I've been with, Ajahn Suchito, who's got a wonderful voice and, and, and he's usually has a number of monks with him when he's leading a retreat. And they, they have a way of chanting, which I find appealing. But there are other times when I just think, oh, come on, they've, they've got to do better than this. You know? <laughs> but for me, you know, right now, it's not about the, the musical quality of it. It's just about, about the vibratory quality when I'm doing it by myself. Right. Um, and it's interesting because I've also taken, taken it on the road in a sense i've i've uh, even when i'm as you know you know ride i ride a motorcycle a lot and i'll be riding the motorcycle and chanting this mantra a oh lot, that's great you know which <laughs> is hilarious. a it helps me remember it but b it's like protective chant so why wouldn't i want to be protected <laughs> you know? yeah and yeah. uh and then it becomes somewhat meditative hopefully i'm not you know getting into any state where i'm in danger i mean i'm not right. but it, you know there is something about that it focuses um, the mind yeah so, yeah, I would say that in the last years, my practice has changed quite a bit. I mean, it, my, my default practice had generally just been a kind of open awareness practice, which is, I suppose, in, you know, still basically my default practice, but it's augmented by these, these other practices. Um, to an extent, I think of my own practice as being part, as being partly conceptual. In other words, I mean, a lot of my work is you know, coming up with videos and doing, you know, looking at arguments, looking at discussions, looking at papers, looking at, you know, 
and it's dharma related i mean i i guess i could i could you know artificially separate that from practice but really i think that would be artificial um I, it feels like practice to me to be looking at these at this material and certainly within the early tradition that was you know coming listening to the dharma was considered a practice and mm-hmm. con- contemplating the dharma and discussing the dharma was considered practice so um right. you know that's yeah. part of uh, of course. I mean, interestingly, when you were talking about uh, about chanting, it occurs to me that you know a, a lot of my own learning about Dharma has been through people like Bhikkhu Bodhi, and whenever he begins a Dharma talk, he begins with you know a chant, and yeah. he often ends with a chant as well. Yeah. And the first time I heard that from him, that was very foreign to me because, of course, we don't I'm do sure. that in in a normal philosophy talk. But, and, and there may also be somebody in the in the sangha who's listening to him that that chants. Basically, there's a chant that usually is said at the end of a Dharma talk by a monastic that, uh, you know, is basically uh, thanking him for the chant Mm. and, uh, you know, that uh, honoring him for the, for the, not for the chant, for the talk. talk. Um, And so, yeah, I've heard Bhikkhu Bodhi, um, he's got a kind of funny style of chanting, but it's, it's wonderful to, to hear him do that. You know, and then you hear, of course, Tibetan chanting, which is a whole other, Mm. you know, form of chant and uh has a certain of course there there are <laughs> i know every once in a while at carnegie hall they'll present these monks you know who are doing their chanting and it's it's kind of an, a weird phenomena uh out of context but for you know for my own practice right now um it, I'm, I'm it's certainly enlivening in a bit and as i say it's it's helping me connect very directly to my body. And then, you know, and the other thing is that, you know, just as when, as when thoughts come in the mind. So if you're doing formal practice and, and, you know, something is, is coming into your mind that's related to, to something you had just read, right? One habit of mind, especially for somebody like you might be to, to start, you know, really kind of thinking about it in a particular way. But in a sense, the practice would be more about, well, okay, so that's arising. What else is arising with that? How, how is the body and, and emotional and the heart receiving it? Right. So there's a knowing of that thought arising. There's a knowing of the teaching arising or whatever is then what happens. You know, that's really key to, to one's practice. So. Yeah. This is something I learned from you, actually. And I thank you for it because it's not something that I would have. It's not something that comes natural. In other words, it's not something that I would have done before. Right. You know, before this. Before you would have done what? Just sort of gotten into the. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because the for somebody from a philosophical background, I think from like myself, it's yeah. you know the the philosophy is an end in itself, you know, and it's right. it, it's it spins itself out, and the danger there is it becomes very scholastic, mm. um, and you get uh, lost in arguments and disputes, uh, which is the danger. Um, and this is one of the right. dangers that I've in, in comes up every day when I <laughs> when I no I mean really when I study this stuff for, with myself and looking at other people online or in articles yeah the dangers of arguments and disputes are everywhere yeah it's fascinating to watch that yeah well and it can be very sad too yeah. and and to me it, it's just I feel it here I feel it in the chest I feel it in the stomach you know it's it's a tightening that happens. Mm-hmm. Very quickly, with a lot of discussions, you know, because people get 
very invested in their own point of view. And I get just as invested as anybody else. And <laughs> it's this kind of practice that you just mentioned that is so helpful to beginning to get yourself out, to get myself out of it, you know, yeah. by dropping down into the body, by trying to, by, by realizing, first of all, the dangers. And because there's, you know, practice has its benefits, but also it can go off the rails in various directions. For sure. Uh, and you have, I feel like I have to be aware of what the dangers are in, in every practice, but certainly when it comes to conceptual stuff, the conceptual practices is getting invested in it, getting clinging to it. Right. You can, you know, you're sort of observing these arguments, these discussions or these at times arguments, you know, going yeah. on around various teachings and you, you're part of that. And then you go to meditate and all you can do is sort of think about that argument and, and you know, yeah. I'm right, he's wrong, et cetera. You know, what a jerk, whatever it is that's coming up, you know, and it's like, well, okay, so that's happening. And then the knowing mind knows that that's happening. And then the knowing mind is also open to what else is happening. <laughs> yeah. And it's just remembering that. That's a whole other discussion on, on, you know, the, really the thinking mind and the heart mind, the, or the, the conceiving mind and the knowing mind. And, you know, how do we, how do we hold those two in balance? So we can make that a topic for a, a really interesting discussion, I think, down the road. Yeah. Discussion so, about uh, the dangers of practice. Yeah. So many of them. Yeah. 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 So, as always, you know, feel free to write in and tell us about your practice, what comes up for you. It can be really interesting to hear how others, you know, work. Do you chant? You know, what does that do to you, et cetera. So, yeah, whatever comes up for you from this discussion that we're having would be great to hear. Yeah, I would so, love to hear it. Yeah. yeah. So, thanks for the true confessions. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for your Meditators teachers, Anonymous. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. Cool. All right. Okay. So Until next time. Yep. Be well. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at johnaaron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Digging the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron. Mm-hmm.